Shalom and welcome to Mamish, the oy and joy of family. I'm your host, Lori Fine, here to bring you laughs, stories, and a little walk away wisdom for our fellow travelers on this wild parenting ride where our community and our traditions are our greatest guides. I am super excited to be here today to talk to you about the joy of family life with a woman whose mission is really aligned with mine, Bracha Getz. Bracha, welcome to the program. Bracha is the mother of six children, now adults, and 36 grandchildren. Wow. Bracha is also the author of 42 books, most of which are illustrated children's books. And we're going to get to all of that because they're really, really important topics in raising children. And Bracha has been on a mission to help us raise our kids. So I'm really excited to see our conversation today. Remind me, you have six children ages what to what? Oh, gosh, let's see, 33 to 43. And and you said you had 36 grandchildren, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Kinahara. And what are their ages? Oh, my goodness. She's four months to age 21. And you said you graduated Harvard College in what year? 77. And did you go on and get other education? So I went to medical school. From there, I went on to medical school. After my first year, I went to Israel for my six-week break, and I didn't come back for 10 years. So things changed around a lot that summer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What happened? And <laughs> that's when I became from that summer. I became observant. In six I, weeks? I really, yeah, immediately, I would say. When I started to learn about everything I hadn't known, I like, this is what I've been looking for. Yes. And I took a year's leave of absence from medical school, and then I just didn't go back. Wow, that's a big story. Big yeah. decision. It didn't feel like it. It didn't even feel like a big decision. It was so clear. Really? Yeah. Well, so I guess because we're on a parenting podcast here, I can ask you, how did your parents feel about that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. They were so upset. So upset. I mean, like, they thought I joined a cult. Okay. See, my my parents... Like my mother had helped me find this volunteer position at Hadassah Hospital because I was volunteering on the oncology ward because she said, I want you to meet someone Jewish. I only dated non-Jews like for years, you know, and she really wanted me to be in a Jewish environment and try to date someone Jewish. And she helped me get that volunteer position. You know, they, they put on a skit when I got engaged at Orsameach and it, somebody was pretending to be my mother and someone was me. And and the person who was my mother says, we wanted you to marry someone Jewish, but this is ridiculous. That's basically, <laughs> that's how they felt about it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, well, you know, 42 new souls later, how do they feel? How did they come to feel about it? <laughs> oh, very, very different. Yes. They, of course, when the grandchildren came along, that changed everything. <laughs> oh, they were so happy. Yeah, before my mother passed away, she actually asked if my father could live with us. And he had Alzheimer's and he was with us for the last years of his life. But we, we say he became, you know, observant at 84 when he started keeping Shabbos and Shomer Kashrus because he was with us, you know, he'd wake up every day and ask if it was Shabbos, you know, like he loved it, you know. <laughs> right. right. I think a lot of us feel like it would be nice if every day were Shabbos sometimes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And were your parents professionals as well? I mean, did you come from a family of doctors or... No, not they didn't know where I was coming from, actually. No, my father was very big into socialism and he wasn't into me going to a private university. 
my sister went to a state university. That's what they expected of me. But I don't know, the, the college guidance counselor in my school was like, oh, no, she needs to apply to Ivy League schools and stuff like that. So they really didn't want me to, but I kind of rebelled and went to Harvard. That's what what, what happened there. Because <laughs> when, when, when they weren't home, I signed the acceptance forms and sent them in, you know? Yeah, they, they, they weren't into really that private education thing, but yeah. I mean, did they pay I, for I, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also I was able to skip a year with sophomore standing, which was very helpful. You know, that if you take like three, you pass three AP exams, you can skip. When In my time, I don't know if they're still doing this, I could skip my freshman year and enter as a sophomore. So that was, that saved a lot of money. And so, yeah, I, I did it in three years. I even did it in less because I, while I was there, I was taking graduate courses. I was like, yeah, I had a blast. I had a really good time. Yeah. Wow. What was your field of study? Yeah. Yeah. I was psychology, psych and social relations, and I was pre-med. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, I, I, in every I direction, a... <laughs> you know, that your parents yeah, didn't yeah. go to Harvard doesn't exactly resonate with most parents today. <laughs> and... They weren't that, they weren't that into that. They weren't driven people professionally at all. You know, my father worked for the post office for over 30 years. My mother was a secretary part-time. My father, though, he was, they were very smart people, but like very humble. And my my father actually was involved in designing the zip code system. He designed that. He invented the zip code system. Yeah. So That's he was like amazing. a system, yeah, a systems analyst analyst years ago doing that wow. kind of work yeah really interesting yeah. wow okay and so then so in other words you you said you had one sister is that right yes she's nine years older than me oh my gosh okay so that's how so you grew up a little bit of an only child almost right right and then did you know you wanted to have such a big family yourself <laughs> well, I don't know. I, 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 I would crowd out myself in my bed with all my dolls, pretending they were my big family of all these children I had, you know, there was barely room for me to sleep. But, but in reality, I'd never even babysat. I didn't really know how to take care of children. And, but my boyfriend, my boyfriend in college was Catholic Jesuit. And he came from a big family which I loved. I loved hanging out with his big family and I was hoping I could have a big family someday like his. Yeah. Wow. So that's really interesting. And then you went to Israel and what changed your life that way? When I was in Harvard, even before Harvard, and it got to the worst place in medical school, I was suffering from eating disordered behavior, like fluctuating between anorexic kind of behavior and binge eating. So I looked successful on the outside and nobody knew how I was suffering, but I was suffering more and more. And life, as successful as I looked on the outside, I felt that life was purposeless and I did not know what I was living for. I remember that one of the things my mother told me, do whatever you want when you're in Israel, just don't contact this one religious fanatic that I knew from childhood. He became religious. He, I knew him uh, from kindergarten. So of course, right away, you know, I sent him a letter and I said, you know, I'm studying to be a psychiatrist but I don't know the purpose of life. I'm going to help other people. And I don't even understand why life is worth living. More and more, I felt like I was in a prison of my mind with the walls getting narrower and narrower. And so I felt like I was suffering more and more as the years went on. By the time I remember that I went to visit, I finally told my boyfriend in medical school that then he, I had, it was, my boyfriend was a Southern Baptist and I finally told him what I was doing with all my bizarre behavior wrapped around food. 
and he said, you know, maybe you should see the therapist that's that's assigned to the the medical students. So I went to meet with him. He was a Japanese psychiatrist and he was phenomenal. And I spilled everything to him. I told him like everything that nobody knew about me, what I was doing. And he said to me, you know, I think what you're describing is more like a spiritual need. I feel like when you go to Israel this summer, you're going to find what you're looking for. It was really amazing that he was able to pinpoint that, you know? Well, that's really what happened. I, I found the nourishment that my soul was craving and I feel like my soul was starving. And immediately upon going to these classes that the guy took me to the the guy who was a religious fanatic, you know, he brought me to Neve and he brought me to Orsamaic, which had a small women's division. So I went to these two places and Orsamaic was really excited to have me. It was just a brand new small women's school, a branch off of Orsamaic. So I, within a week, I moved out of the dorms at Hadassah. I moved into Orsamaic like the first class I went to, I felt like this is what I was looking for my whole life. I had read like Hasidic tales. I used to read Hasidic tales. Like I get, I got books like that. I used to read them on the beach with my boyfriend and he was really into it, but I didn't know people like that still existed. And like that, that there was this spiritual side to Judaism. That's what I was so thrilled to learn about. So I, I just loved it immediately, even though I didn't understand all the words that were in Hebrew in the class. I, I was drawing pictures and I drew this creature. I always drew creatures. It was jumping off the world, screaming, yay. Like I finally found what I was looking for. Wow. Wow. That is a really powerful story. It's, <laughs> it makes you really, I mean, to bring it back to the sort of topic of this podcast, you know, Part of the point of this is how do we raise our kids to be competent adults, fulfilled, find what they, the direction that they'd like to go in life. And obviously, you know, it's always on my mind how much we see in the news every day, every minute, how the rates of mental health problems are going up. You know, I think eating disorders are less trendy now, but there's lots of other you know, <laughs> mental health problems that have come to take their place. I think that many people might consider, I think that religious people might look and say that there's a spiritual hunger that's not being met. I think other people who, you know, might not phrase it that way, but I think a lot of people do recognize that there's chaos or confusion and that, you know, people are looking for something that they don't know even what. And to hear a story like that, that someone who appeared so successful but really didn't feel it on the inside in such a short time could identify you know first of all it sounds like from a parenting perspective your mom she must have had so much she must she wasn't very good at getting her own point across apparently unless she was maybe you know using uh reverse psychology on you or something <laughs> but you know as parents I think that we're always searching for how can we help our kids do what we think is best for them. Sometimes what we think is best for them doesn't turn out to be what they think is best for themselves. And I think there's so much to pull apart in your personal story about that. I'm curious if you, how you feel that your personal experience in that way influenced you when you were raising your own six children. Yeah. Well, for sure, I grew, they grew up in a home where we were extremely real about everything and all our questions. If ever I was confused about something, I would bring it up. We'd talk about it really openly. Our home was filled with all kinds of people and they loved that. People that were observant, people that weren't observant, and everybody was very open and the children learned about this really early on speaking your truth asking questions very vulnerably being being open to to knowing what are we here for 
what are we doing this all? What's purpose of life? This is the kind of questions that was going around our home. And it was definitely filled with a lot of joy. So they were not searching elsewhere, my children. I mean, this is, they knew from us what was already out there and they knew where their parents had come from. They, they developed their values, you know, very similar to ours. Was yeah. your husband also, did he have a similar story to yours? Kind of, yeah. I mean, he, after college, he was an urban planner. He came to Israel to volunteer on an, an irreligious kibbutz. He worked there in a development town. And then at one point when he was going back to America, someone said, shouldn't you like even meet a rabbi here while you're here? Okay. He ended up going to Asia Torah and becoming religious. And so he was three years ahead of me in his religious journey. Uh -huh. yeah. So for listeners who might not know what Aisha Torah and Orsameach and all of these institutions are, do you want to say a few words of how you think of them? Yeah, I, they're kind of for late beginners. Like it's, it's designed for older people to start learning the basics about Judaism in an in-depth kind of way. Um, not the way you may have learned about it in Hebrew school, but to get into the depths of Oh, what is the Torah? What is the Bible? The Hebrew Bible looks really talking about get going into all different levels of understanding so that it was totally fascinating to me. Yeah. Amazing. So, you know, when you talk about being real about everything and having very open conversations, do you have any examples of what you mean by that? Like, for instance, we live we lived across the street from recovery houses. My husband and I ended up being like their spiritual counselors. And the and the, the recovering addicts would come over. They'd be with us. The children, I mean, the children loved it, you know, being part of seeing what it's like and very open discussion about everything in life. So they just got to learn. Uh, and when you say, you know, speak your truth and ask what we're here for and what our purpose yes. is, you know, I think yeah. that that obviously could be quite a long answer, but do you have any sort of rules to live by or thoughts of what that means to you? I mean, how did you answer that question and how do your kids answer that question? Yeah, and, and to question everything. That's what I loved about it. You know, they they always were taught to question. Don't just take something as this is it, you know? So, and that's what I loved in the, in the education that I found. So what do I feel is the purpose of life? This is something that, so I was, I, is that what you mean? I mean, you know, when you say it and you throw that out and say, well, my period kids learned what the purpose of life is, so they're not searching for something else. You yeah. know, it sort of begs the question of what it is, because one of the questions that I get into a lot with guests on this podcast is, you know, what is what is the goal or the purpose of being a parent? What is your job? I mean, is your yeah. job just to feed and clothe them and get them to be grown enough to do that for themselves or are you influencing their their what ideas how do you decide when you know if your if what you see as your vision for your child is different from what your child comes to see as their vision for themselves how do you know what to do when do you push them when do you pull yourself back all of these things are part of to me the importance of parenting and i feel that having five children i have developed along the way different sets of answers of what i think that really means i mean i would say there's layers of course of what i would say is the purpose of the parents and i absolutely don't think that parenting is done at age 18 i think it's sort of a lifelong proposition that you have a loving mentor who is 20 to 30 or 40 years ahead of you in life and has have that much more experience and that much more time to think things through and can help you with with anything you know that you might be going through so 
in any case, I would love to hear, you know, when you talk about these big questions, it sounds like you have some good answers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I do. No, because Rabbi Noach Weinberg was such a revolutionary genius. He founded Orsameg and then actually he founded Asia Torah too. And what what I learned from him this is what I was searching for. What's the purpose? Just like, do we get up every day to go to work, to make money, to buy food, to go to work? What's it all for? He would say the purpose of life is to experience the greatest pleasure possible. What? Like that sounds hedonistic. But what does a parent want for their child? A parent wants their children to experience the greatest pleasure possible in life. What is the greatest pleasure possible? So that's when he would explain the greatest pleasures possible are all the spiritual pleasures. Those are the pleasures that last. So he, what he unfolded was the pleasure ladder, which to me, it shaped my whole life. The pleasure ladder it has five rungs on it, which which I feel it corresponds to our five fingers. Totally empowering. We can bring pleasure into our lives at any moment. We have that possibility. So the five levels of pleasure that Rabbi Weinberg spoke of, they correspond to the five levels of the human soul. So when we experience the lowest level of pleasure, those are the pleasures we get from the natural physical pleasures in this world. And since that level of pleasure, since the lowest level of the body is attached to the soul, when we experience those pleasures with gratitude, it uplifts both our body and our soul. It nourishes our body and our soul, like eating an orange. An orange, it's, it's a great example to me because... You take an orange, and first of all, it's green. It's all, it's camouflaged in with the leaves until it's ready. And then, I'm ready. It calls in its beautiful, bright <laughs> color. And it smells beautiful, beautiful to look at. And the sweet juiciness is kept in for months because it's individually packaged with this amazing peel. And then, when you finish it, you have the seeds of eternity. And these seeds become infinite amount of tree, can become infinite amount of trees, infinite amount of oranges. It's, in other words, this little orange is an example of infinite loving kindness and infinite wisdom. So that's just one orange. That's just one tiny thing on that lowest level of pleasure, you know? So that's how we can experience the world with mindful gratitude. And these are the opportunities that we have. And the mitzvahs, the mitzvahs are all connections. They're all opportunities for mindful gratitude. So that's that's just one example on just the lowest level of pleasure. I could tell you about all, all the <laughs> levels. And, and they're all, they all bring us greater connection. Because what is an addiction? It's disconnection. It's disengagement. It's, it's isolation, loneliness. This is when we're cut off. We, we, we bring connection back into our lives when we recognize we are being loved by an infinite energy source all the time that's infinitely good and we are too this is what changed my whole framework of life i i didn't believe in god growing up my you know i'd ask my father about it and he'd say i'm agnostic i, I don't know if there's a god or not i said then why are you living and he would say I know it's like I'm watching a TV show. I want to see what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, but that that wasn't good enough for me. I, I wanted to know the reason. So now I feel like I understand what we're here for. And by Weinberg explained that every rung on the ladder, there's only one price to pay, and that's gratitude. That's really our purpose for being here to experience joyful gratitude. How did that work out? With your kids, I mean, young children especially are notorious for 
not necessarily appreciating everything that is granted to them. And, you know, certainly, you know, a lot of, you see a lot of verbiage about gratitude, but you also see a heck of a lot of people who aren't that grateful or who have trouble with gratitude. I can speak for my own self. I, I, I would say there's a range within my children. I think they're all pretty good, but I have one child in particular who seems to have been born with a really grateful mindset. And she's the kind of kid that any little thing that you do for her, she's thankful. And anything that she gets, she's we'll talk about it for 10 minutes, almost to the point where we tease her. It's cute, but it's like, okay, we get it. It's a great orange. Good job, you know? <laughs> and I mean, the way you just described an orange might be something, the type of thing that she would do on a regular day <laughs> when that's like the snack, you know? And she, so, you know, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that different people, I think perhaps, are packaged with different software, if you will, and have an easier or harder time with that. I think that there is something challenging, I mean, about gratitude. And I'm curious how you conveyed it to your children. And did you find that your different children dealt with it differently? And can you describe maybe a couple of examples of that? For sure. Absolutely. They all are on different, we call it happiness set points, you know, people oh, are like on different... Yeah, they're on different ranges, but yeah, they are all grateful people. One of the basic things that I did, I don't know where I got this idea, but my, my children do it now with their children. Whenever I would hand anything to any of my children, it's a pen, it's an orange, it's a, a cup of water, I didn't let go of it. I'm still holding it. They're holding it. Why is she not letting go? Why is mommy not letting go? Until they said the magic words like, thank you. And I'm standing there smiling. I'm holding on to it. Oh, thank you. Okay. This really made an impression. It wasn't done seriously. It was done playfully. They all got the message that every single thing we get in life is a gift not to take things for granted. And this message is deeply ingrained in, in all my children. And for sure, I write about it. It's in all my children's books, even in subtle ways, even in, even in the board books for the toddlers, I'm, I sneak in gratitude messages. They're, they're throughout all my books. So yeah, I, I am definitely into implanting gratitude in early, as early in life as possible. Um, because it really is the greatest secret to happiness. Wow. Wow. It's interesting. A lot of parents that we've had on this podcast who have large families and seem to be happy about it have, have talked about gratitude being one of the primary lessons that they feel themselves and also want to convey to their kids. And so maybe that's a big piece of it because I... I feel like I see a lot of people who struggle with even one or two kids and it's hard to deal with them and their needs and their wants. I wonder, are there other things that you've done to cultivate gratitude? And also, is there ever a time that you can recall when one of your kids was not getting the message and you had to <laughs> take additional measures, perhaps? I mean, were the teen years? I think the teen years are sort of conventionally thought of as a less thankful, less full of gratitude time in life. Definitely. I, I, at first, I want to say there is an entitlement epidemic right now. There's no question about it. I believe that the pandemic pushed all of us forward spiritually. It got us all not to take things for granted like we were one day before we were no longer taking things for granted in the mm. same way. Everybody's life changed. We were suddenly not taking for granted family gatherings, hugs, even our own breath, our breathing. Everything changed. And hopefully these lessons have made an impression on all of us. So there's a huge entitlement epidemic. And at the same time, 
there's a sense of scarcity in life. That's why I feel addictions are so widespread. Food addictions, you could see it right away. We stuff, we keep stuffing our faces because it's a sense of scarcity. There's not enough pleasure in my life. So this I'm getting, I get pleasure for the one second when this food is right here between my lips and my throat, I'm experiencing pleasure. And if I want the pleasure to keep lasting, I'll just keep eating. That's the hard part. It's, it's not that a person eats junk. It's that it's, it's being, it's hard to stop eating it. That is the real problem. Why the whole container of ice cream gets eaten, the whole bag of potato chips, because People want the pleasure to keep lasting. It's a sense of a, a scarcity of pleasure in one's life. So when we change that to a sense of abundance and we recognize that there's an infinite amount of pleasure available to us every moment that we can bring into our life, it changes the entire picture of life. So yeah, that is what I'm showing my children throughout life too. Have I had it? as a problem. Yeah, I think of one child in particular, and she's in the middle, right? And, and I picture her in these preteen teen years, when she always felt, why are they getting that? Why are these get? they're getting new shoes? Why they're getting new? Why am I not getting it? I can remember her saying all those kind of things for sure. Now she's going through that with her own children. It's really funny. But, you know, I, I just kept emphasizing it, you know, in Hebrew, there's no word fair. It doesn't go like that in this world. It's not like you all get the same thing. It, it doesn't work. If people have different needs, you don't need shoes right now. This child needs shoes. It's just not working out like that. Just keep re-emphasizing to a child that their mind will more often see a sense of scarcity about the pleasures in their life than the sense of abundance. We have to just keep trying to change their happiness set, set point. What, what changes a, a person's happiness set point? It's not what happens to them. They found that six months after a person wins a million dollar lottery, or, or six months after, God forbid, a person becomes paralyzed, they're back at the same level of happiness they were at beforehand. What does change a person's happiness set point is the practice of gratitude that actually elevates their sense of happiness in life. Wow. Now, is that something that you learned as a lesson from your personal experience or is that something that you had an academic interest in or or i'm curious yeah definitely it was an academic i mean all of this i've learned from studying judaism through the years the the the, the jewish people i learned yehudim hod yehud the 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 essence of being a Jew is being thankful. That's that's at the middle. That's at the root of us. We are the gratitude people. That is really how we are a light to the nations. That's the way we can really shine. And and all the mitzvahs are about making that connection to source with gratitude, thanking, feeling that sense of gratitude. So yeah, it's all different levels of learning that I've been doing in Judaism that have made this clearer and clearer to me through the years. Wow. Okay. So when you say that we are in this entitlement epidemic, how do you think we got there? And how do you think that regular parents who let's say are not necessarily leading a religious life or aren't turning their life upside down to become religious the way you did. <laughs> what might somebody do in order to manage that with children? How do we overcome the entitlement epidemic? Yeah. Definitely. It's definitely about experiencing a person, if they are not happy with what they have right now, they're not going to be happy with what they get or what they think will make them happy. It won't last long. This understanding, this wisdom about life, you know, we're drowning in knowledge, but we are really still starving for wisdom. And this is the wisdom of how life works. We, we are not happy for long with the new things. It's, it's all about cultivating an appreciation for what you already have. 
That's what we learn in Ethics of the Fathers, Pirkeabos, who is rich? Those who are happy with what they have. This is a really rich life because you're appreciating all the gifts. So this, the more we can explain that to children and they'll see it when we model it ourselves, of course, when we are experiencing that joy, they get the message. Beautiful. Well, there's a couple other things I wanted to get to. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, you approached me about coming on the podcast because you are an author of amazingly 41 books for children. And I'd love to hear more about how you found that that field, how you found your purpose in that field, and, and what kind of feedback you get about your books, because I'm sure you must be it must be a constant feedback loop from all of your readers. Yeah, well, I I wrote the books because I wanted to write the books that I wished I had as a child. Books that explain things, really deep or complex topics in the most simple and joyful way possible. That's what I was craving, so that's what I did. That's what I'm still doing. And people think, oh, like you probably get, she went to Harvard, she's gonna write complicated intellectual things. To me, I like to write the simplest stuff. Get, get it down to the most simplest form possible, and that's how you can make things clear. So that's what I love to do. Like, I have books also, even as an undergraduate, I was taking courses at Harvard Medical School and the Graduate School of Public Health and Graduate School of Education. So these are my interests. So I have books about the prevention of abuse. Some of those are the most popular books, like hundreds of thousands of copies of those books have really changed the the orthodox community, it, you know, it was the first picture books on the subject about prevention of abuse. And that was not easy, breaking through it was, it, to get the books published. That was a lot of work. So I, I first wrote the book in one book in 2007. It wasn't published till 2011, the Let's Stay Safe book. And then there's talking about personal privacy. So these books have completely transformed the orthodox communities and that now it's talked about children are taught prevention education so also recently i wrote a book let's swim safely see these are public health issues but essential that weren't being talked about and now are books about let's appreciate everyone how to be inclusive to children with disabilities teaching children the basic guidelines so they know how to interact because children just stare when they see a child with a visible disability. And I based this on workshops of Yael Zellinger. So now children know, in addition to staring, there's another five letter word that also begins with S and that smile. And that creates a connection. You can stare because you're curious, but add your smile and that creates a bond. I'm, but I teach specific things too about how to integrate and be more inclusive with children of all disabilities. And then there's books about healthy eating. I, I wrote that during the pandemic because I was asked to, parents were saying children don't understand why they shouldn't just be eating junk all day, why they need to exercise, why they need to get enough sleep. So I explain all, all of this to children and about how God made all these healthy foods for us and how special they are, how the wisdom, as I explained with the orange, are in all these fruits and vegetables. So I make it much more wondrous for children to understand about these things. And, and then there are spiritual books like the invisible book, I, I, I explain that like there's all these invisible forces like gravity. When you let go of a book, it falls to the ground. It's an invisible force. There's electromagnetism. 
how can the magnet pick up the paperclip? It's an invisible force. There's our thoughts, there's our feelings, all invisible, so is time. And we believe in all these things because we see their effects. Same thing that we are invisible spiritual beings. It's not that far-fetched to understand that when we see the effects of, of, of the spirituality in our lives, and then we can comprehend it um, in a much more concrete way. So those are just some examples of how my books are really helping children to gain happiness skills from the beginning of life so they could lead more productive and fulfilling lives. Wow, that's really quite amazing. Beautiful. And I, I, you know, I love the way that you explain that, that we have a spirit that we can't see, and yet you can still know it's there because you see the impact in your life. Do yes. you have any examples from your children or your grandchildren that they, you know, when you sort of saw an aha moment when they kind of got that idea? Yeah, my my newest book is called Don't Read This Book. I'm holding this up. Don't read this book. It's about this book took me 30 years to write. I wrote it 30 years ago. I had the title. I had most of the book. It was not ready for children. Something about it seemed scary. So I kept working on it. And then finally, last year, I got the missing piece. And that is this. This is about that voice in all our heads. It's that inner critic. It's the voice that's trying to get us to be miserable all day long. We all have that voice. So it tells us that there's a picture of a girl. She's with her mother shopping. The cart's filled with stuff. But she wants that one thing by the counter and she starts having a tantrum. No, I got to have that. That'll make me happy, you know? So... So it's, it tells you how to out-trick. It teaches you the tricks of that voice and how to out-trick it. So basically, my, my, my daughter-in-law said to me the other day, they love this book. So my grandson, he's four. He's outside his bedroom. She's put him to bed, and she sees him standing outside the bedroom. He won't go back in. She says to him, is that little voice talking to you again? He looks at her like, how did you know, you know? And then she goes back a few minutes later, he's back in bed. Like she says, that's all she has to say now. And he gets it. The little voice is taking, telling him to be miserable, get out of bed. And he gets that and he can overpower it. It's like amazing. That's it. That's an example. Uh, I need you to send me a stack of copies immediately. Please. <laughs> I need a hundred of this book. <laughs> I, I mean, forget about children understanding that. How do adults come to understand that? Because, you know, honestly, I, a day doesn't go by where I don't overhear children talking yeah. about the medications they're on to heal their anxiety and and all of, you know, the therapies that they're in. And look, you know, I don't want to be someone's judge of what methods work for their children. And, you know, I'm no expert for sure, but it is quite remarkable how much that little voice is out of control currently yes. for a lot of people. And, you know, a book is a lot cheaper and easier <laughs> if it can help. So The earlier, the better. Absolutely, the earlier, the better, because we have to play catch up so much when we learn these things later on in life imagine see that's the thing that this is teaching us it's incredible so the the surprise ending that i didn't get until last year is that that voice it really doesn't want us to listen to it it's like these dumbbells it wants us to push it off and that's how we exercise our gratitude muscles, pushing off the voice. Imagine that. This is the part I did not understand. So even that has a good purpose. It's not out to get us. It really also wants us to succeed. That's the amazing thing. It changed the whole book. So so that's it. We're, we're really all here for ultimate goodness. 
and to trust in that. See, I didn't trust. Why do we have this sense of control, the eating disorders, the addictions? It's a sense that anxiety, we don't have, we need more control because we don't trust. When we have that sense of trust that there's an ultimate goodness, purpose for us, for life and, and us, that we're ultimately good, it changes the entire perspective. Incredible, incredible, beautiful wisdom. I'm so like a little bit shaky here, you know, tingly. Oh, really beautiful, oh. really beautiful. I went to a reconstructionist camp when I was growing up, which I loved. And that really got the spark going for me of appreciating that there's, there's something to Judaism that I want to know more about. Yeah. And all the mitzvahs are all opportunities for mindful gratitude. That was something that I did not realize. It's a whole new perspective. It's all opportunities for us to reconnect. Well, we're always connected to source, but to connect with an awareness, to recognize that we're always connected to source and to strengthen that connection. Wow. Yeah. What's your favorite mitzvahs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my favorite mitzvah. I love all the blessings that I say all day long, you know, before I eat, after I eat. And of course, the favorite one after going to the bathroom. I mean, that is just so amazing that we're thanking God that our bodies are working right. This is all stuff. It's so easy to take for granted. And we still do. But we're giving those opportunities throughout the day to experience gratitude, which is something that we're so blessed to have as part of Judaism. This is a universal message that the Jewish people can, can shine out to the world. Well, you know, we always promise our listeners to try to have a little bit of humor along with our podcast. And you certainly are good humor and good spirits with six kids within 10 years so your kids were really close in age what was the household like I mean how did you kind of keep it together and manage all of your whole brood that was all similar ages and must have had a lot going on they barely can remember because it was so busy during those years oh my gosh my husband and I like whoa such a busy time that those incredible years. Yes. And a huge struggle because there was so much physical stuff, which I'm not that great at, you know, I'm an ideas person. Oh my gosh. And I had to really get better in the physical world. <laughs> oh, that's so funny that you say that. It's really interesting. You mean, like, what, what do you mean exactly? I mean, housework, you know, I'm not that great at it, but you know, I, had to get good at I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know basic stuff I learned on the job. Yes. <laughs> did yeah. you did that influence what you taught your own children? Or did you <laughs> figure let them figure it out just like I figured it out? Yeah, they they all have figured it out somehow, you know. <laughs> I wasn't worried about them learning it, you know. <laughs> but I do know this. People denigrate the intellectual abilities of being a homemaker. And the more intellect, in, the more of your intellect and creative abilities that you devote to being a homemaker, really in a sense, the less emotional and physical work is involved because there's pre-planning involved. The more you plan out, how can I help my children? And then there's the on the spot thinking that you have to do too. I think people don't really realize what a creative endeavor it is to be a parent. Exactly. Exactly. It is. It is. I love what you're doing. This is so important. So there's a ton of intellectual work, which people don't realize involved in being a parent. And so that's something I really want to emphasize when people think you devote your intellectual and creative abilities to your profession, and then you come home and what's left for the family. Oh, they don't need it that much, but that's not really the case. We, we, the, the, the family needs a tremendous amount of our intellectual and creative abilities, and they really sparkle and flourish from that input with us. Yeah. 
So when you advised your daughters about what would they, what did you think would be best for them when they had children? How do you put that to them? What did you say? I, I didn't advise them. They do whatever they want to do. You know, I mean, they all have different professions and they're all amazing parents also. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so in other words, you give support to people who decide that it's enough to be home, but also you think that being out and about in the world is another option as well. And you're some of your Oh, kids for sure. But they know... Yeah, they know what their priorities are. The priority is they're raising their family. Nobody else is going to care about your children like you. So for sure, our children, our husbands are the most important things. That's it. And everything else that we could do to help the rest of the world, that's great. <laughs> that's on top. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one time I yeah. remember doing when we were when we were when our kids were much, much, you know, were very little. My husband is a little bit of a worrier and he was very concerned about having enough insurance. And, you know, it's, it's fairly easy. I was not working at the time, but I had worked and made a, a pretty nice living. And so it was, you know, a whole conversation of like, well, which way do, do we insure me? And so we ended up going through like, what did I do right now that we would have to replace if he wanted to continue being able to work? And if God forbid, I wasn't there to do all the things I'm doing. And it ended up that my number was higher than his, even though I was home because to replace it all. Yeah. So, you know, it, it is, it is a lot. And I, I have to say, I, I do agree with you. I'm an attorney and I've also worked as a consultant and an educator and they all have their challenges and they all have their intellectual side and stimulation. But I definitely felt that my own curiosity and my own abilities were tested the most in that early childhood air part of my life where yes. you were figuring out, you know, creating a new human being and yes. trying to figure out what you know before they're even verbal what do they mean and how yes how to act to them i think that i feel that i was a little bit you know misled in a way if i can even say it that way that people you know well it doesn't matter this and this doesn't matter and that doesn't matter and yes. We say a lot of things don't matter. I guess I feel almost to assuage ourselves because maybe we really recognize that certain things do matter. My husband and I, we wish quality time was all you needed, you know, <laughs> that, that you could show up and the kid would be ready for you and you'd have your beautiful moment on the Hallmark card or what have you. And, and then that would be it for the day. That's all you needed. But naturally, I think every parent knows that your kids are never ready when you're ready and the timing never lines up. And whether it's the phone ringing or the other kid falling and needing attention for imminent injury or whatever it might be. Yes. So it's life is not so perfect. And uh, even from the perspective of, of children, at least my children, sometimes I think that they prefer quantity time, if you will. They would rather just sit in the room doing their thing while we're doing our thing the whole day. Mm. And if we took them out for a Broadway show sometimes. That's I mean, beautiful. In some ways. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, shouldn't we be doing something? But <laughs> they they don't know I don't know that they feel that way. I don't know. What do you think about that from your children? Well, that's great. They appreciate the downtime with you because life can be very overscheduled. And I think that's beautiful. They really enjoy just hanging out with you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's an awesome gift. <laughs> awesome. That's something to savor, really. Yeah. Well, we definitely all, I mean, we tease each other about different, I mean, they, they, my children, I guess part of our family ethos is teasing mom. So, you know, like you say, that's my muscle, right? My, yeah. uh, the confidence muscle is built by having children remind yeah. you of all of the things that they notice that perhaps others may or may not have noticed or may have been polite, too polite to tell you. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's good. It's so great. Do you feel like your thoughts on parenting have changed from when you were a young parent to now that you're a grandparent 
that you see things that you would with your with your grandchildren that you wish you had done differently or something yeah for sure I mean, now I have time. I don't have to worry about the messes and I can just sit and hang out with them. And and the parents are rushing around and I can just sit and be, be spending time being here now with them. It is so awesome. It's much calmer to be a grandparent than a parent. And you have more confidence too. So it's Yes, it's the best of everything, as everybody says. <laughs> okay, yeah. good. Something to look forward to, I hope. Yeah, definitely, definitely. What kinds yeah. of things did your family like to do together? Were you were they were you the kind of family where people had their own things, or were you the kind of family that all everybody did the same things together? How did you? I I guess a mixture of both, you know. We went on funny trips that they still remember, sleeping in this barn in West Virginia in the summer. They remember the loft. There were no bedrooms. It was hysterical barn that barn that we slept in, you know. We still talk about it. The the funny vacations that we took. <laughs> I mean, they they we had a really great time. Find this but, barn. That's hysterical. I know it's since burned down in West Virginia. We all wanted to go back and visit it no longer. Okay. But it, we went there for like three years straight. We had such a good time there. <laughs> I mean, a lot of a lot of different things that we did together create a lot of happy memories in the future. It, this was funny. Recently, we all got together during Pesach. We went to a park. There were, let's see. I, four out of the six families got together, which is a lot. So we all played a big volleyball game. And my husband had had brain surgery last year. It wasn't so serious as it sounds. It was for a trigeminal nerve, but they had to open his skull because he was in agony. It was a whole thing. So, so we had this surgery done. And he's on the other side playing volleyball. And all of a sudden, he misses the ball. He falls backwards. And right on to where his stitches are, all these, and the whole team, everybody, we were, how many of us, 35 of us were all like, nobody moved, nobody breathed. And there he is laying there. And then he pops back up. I'm fine. Oh my gosh. I can still remember this. It was like, this was this pace that we were hysterical. We could not get over it. Like we go, oh my gosh, he actually fell on where his skull was opened up. Oh my gosh. But we had, we were. It ended up being another experience of so much gratitude. Here he is a year later playing volleyball with us all. And even when he fell down, he got right back up. So thank God. Yeah, it's great to be together. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you have a lot of help while you had all these kids? Did you have, were you able to, to have no, help? No, no, we. I don't know. We lived in Israel for some of those years. So well, it was all, all on our own. And no, we didn't have that much help. That why it was not easy at all, but we made it through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. awesome. So great. Well, you know, if there's any little extra, I mean, you obviously have a very strong theme in your attitude towards parenting and in life. <laughs> That's very clear. But if you were giving any other last bit of wisdom to parents today who might be struggling with all of the issues of the day, is there any other, any advice or inspiration that you would pass along? If when you begin to practice gratitude, if you're not used to it, it can feel so silly. You feel, just feels ridiculous being thankful for little things. But it's like when you are driving on a road that you've never traveled on. It's very gravelly and hard to travel on. Once you, you, you make those grooves, it gets easier and easier. It seriously goes like that. You know, it's that amygdala at the back of the brain. It makes us feel scarcity. I don't have enough. I need more. When you get the neurons firing in the prefrontal cortex, you, you create those neural pathways, gratitude becomes easier and easier. Any moment that you spend in gratitude is a moment you're not being miserable. And it takes like 400 repetitions to create a new habit. But if you do it joyfully, 
10 to 20 repetitions and you've got down a new habit. So bring in the joy, pour in the joy. That's really the way to create new good habits. And, and through gratitude, that it just makes everything easier in life and more joyful. Awesome. So awesome. All right. Well, this has been another fun episode of Momish. I'm so excited that you are here with us. I love hearing about your family and your incredible attitude of gratitude. There is Momish nothing like it. Thank you. My really pleasure. Beautiful. Absolutely. I just you you like are sparkling with ho so much happiness. It's uh, I, I, I'm so grateful for how my life has gone and that now I get to share it with other people. Listeners, I just want to thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Mamish, the Oi and Joy of Family. If you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, rate us on wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, any platform. As always, continue writing to us at lunchbox at momish.com. That's lunchbox at M-O-M-M-A-S-H dot com. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and go enjoy your family. There is momish, nothing like it.